I'm Alan Kogan. Join me as I tour the country tasting different whiskeys and discussing the craft of distillation with local distillers, whiskey lovers, and even those who are new to the culture of spirits. Welcome to The Kogan Conversation. In this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Becky Harris, chief distiller of Catoctin Creek Distilling located in Percival, Virginia. She and her husband, Scott, opened with the intent of celebrating Virginia's rich rye history and has become a favorite spot of mine to visit. If you like this episode and others we've done, do me a favor and leave us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I truly appreciate your listenership and look forward to sharing the amazing things we have coming. But for now, the spotlight is on Catoctin Creek and their inspiring story of craft distilling. Enjoy the episode. Cheers. All right. Well, Becky, thank you for having me here at the actual distillery. How many people mispronounce the name, first of all? I'm curious. Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're local, unless you're local, then you most likely know it. But yeah, everybody else, everybody else. No, I I get it. I I think I was calling it Katosin when I first moved here. Oh, so common. Yeah. Not even, not even a um, catechin. Yeah, catechin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of that. That's the first thing. Generally, when we move into a new state and have a sales meeting, that's the first thing. (laughs) Even at whiskey shows, you know, I'm doing whiskey shows. I First thing I'd like to say is how to pronounce her name. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yes. I appreciate you having me here at the distillery. Yeah. I, I wanted to get get to know you and get to know your craft and, and showcase Catoctin. I've loved your rye since I've moved to Virginia. Thank you. Uh, originally from Wisconsin. So, mm-hmm. uh, but tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into this and about the distillery. I'm from Wisconsin too. Really? Where are you from? Milwaukee. <laughs> Milwaukee. Okay. I'm from Ch- Chippewa Falls. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So Jack, that's where I Jack went. Jack Dawson. <laughs> I went to school um, in Madison and uh, then, you know, moved away a long time ago. But my folks are still up there. So I go up in the summers. Awesome. Summers, of course. <laughs> yeah. <it's> too cold <laughs> in the winter. That's why That's why I moved away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Uh, so, yeah. So how did you get into whiskey distilling? So um, I've worked in a number of different industries. So I've done, um, I worked in a place that did ex- like ex- foam extrusion. Um, I've worked at a place that did copper and nickel plating on plastic for like the inside of your uh, cell phone is plated in copper and nickel um, for shielding. And then I worked at um, a place that did contact lenses. So I've been like all over the map on um, on what I do because I'm a chemical engineer and about gosh, what is it now? 15 and a half, 16 years ago, Scott came to me and had this idea to start a distillery and it wasn't intimidating from a technical perspective i mean distillation is pretty basic chemistry the the main thing i wasn't sure was whether we'd make any money (laughs) (laughs) and that is the hardest thing about having a distillery bar none um, is making money making whiskey if you didn't have to pay taxes or um your other partners you probably if you're up in the hills you probably could make good money making whiskey (laughs) but most people what do want to do it our way are paying a lot of other people too so yeah so um that was the big challenge for him um he runs the business side and i run production so we kind of split it up that way it works pretty well 
Is it a natural progression for a chemical engineer to go into the basic chemistry of distilling? Does that help you? Is it inform you? Well, um, I mean, if you want to put it this way, if you look to most of the largest distilleries, they hire chemical engineers. What are they? They're ethanol plants. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Makes sense. it's ethanol. It's just beverage ethanol. Yeah. And so especially in, you know, those systems, that's especially the bigger you get, the more piping, pumping, all those things. That's all chemical engineering, really. So it 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 is a really natural fit. Gotcha. So why Catoctin Creek? What is the name mean? What is the area to you? Um, so Catoctin Creek runs. It's like if you walk out the tasting room door and walk down the street before you go um before you go a mile you'll cross the south fork of the Catoctin Creek okay so there's two forks of the Catoctin Creek they run through the entire county um it's a regional name um the Catoctin Mountains are in Maryland where Camp David is Mm -hmm. they have a Catoctin Creek we have a Catoctin Creek it seemed like kind of a natural um natural name really and it wasn't till we moved out of the area with uh distribution that we realize oh people can't say it <laughs> but you know that it lefroig is managed <laughs> yeah i was gonna say yeah lefroig <laughs> there's a lot of scottish names that people mispronounce and they're doing all right <laughs> i'll say well one of the one of the things i love talking to especially craft distillers about it is just the tlc that goes into the trade that you're i mean you're a small business that mm-hmm. i mean your dist- distribution has gotten a lot bigger in, in, over the last couple of years which i've, I've appreciated because i can find it yeah but, yeah <laughs> but Tell me more about like how what what gets you going. I, I, I'm sure this is such a fun job to actually get into the nitty gritty and actually do the craft of distil- distilling. Yeah, you know, making the product is is really, but but there's 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 a trade off. So, um, and it and it really depends on your scale and your distribution reach. Basically, how much you can do, if you will. Um, when one of the things is I've been doing this for 15 years and we have uh, a a especially in in our region we're, we're really well known for rye. We have established customers. Most people have heard of us. I go to, you know, prof- trade tastings and most of the trade are familiar with our products. We had representation in the area and it's really solid. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is if you're coming in now that's a whole different kind of calculus to think about, right? Yeah. Um, we tell people, so one of my side gigs, if you will, is I work in advocacy for the American Craft Spirits Association. Oh, cool. I'm the immediate past president, and I am right now co-chair of the Government Affairs Committee. And so we work on things, issues that come for craft distillers. And so it's funny because a lot of people ask me questions about it and I'm like, I honestly don't have a good base of knowledge to say, how do you start a distillery? What it's like to start one now? Because 14, 15 years ago, there were 200 craft distilleries in the United States. Now there are 2,700 craft That's distilleries. And yeah. And when we started, we were the local whiskey in DC. <laughs> Really? We had the city to ourselves. There was no one else making making craft spirits in this either in the city proper or very close to it. So we we basically could have a really sketched together, you know, we didn't have great labels. We had pretty crappy labels. <laughs> Scott would admit it. Um we didn't have all that put together, but we had, 
you know, product, we had a story, we had people excited about it. And that's kind of how our project grew, right? Sure. It was very organic, very are tied to the enthusiasm that we had for the history of the area. And we could kind of be that. I think one of the challenges now for people who are coming in is that you, you don't have that ability, right? Mm -hmm. You come in and you say, Hey, I'm going to make Virginia's rye whiskey. And you find out, (laughs) Oh, Catoctin's already there. Right. And, and so they've got that. So how do I make myself different? How is my story different? How, I can't just cobble together labels and come out. I have to put money into branding. I have to plan. I have to know that most of my product is going to be sold out my front door. Right. Because the the shelves and the distribution channels are getting more and more crowded every year. And only some of that is from the the, uh, small brands. A lot of it is from the big brands because that's a way they can spread out their influence and and keep their market share, right? Absolutely. I mean, although we're like so tiny compared (laughs) to what they send out, but Anheuser-Busch didn't pay attention to craft beer. The big legacy brands are paying attention to craft spirits. And that's why I tell people, we're in the best time for whiskey you've ever been in. Yeah, maybe you can't get Buffalo Trace for 10 bucks. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is you've got way more choices and options. And the big guys are doing way more things because they recognize that they have to be creative. They have to be at least keeping up with right. all the stuff that the craft distillers are doing. So I don't even remember what we were talking about at the <laughs> beginning anymore. But basically, there's so many challenges with doing it. There is creativity, but you also have to balance your creativity with your business sense. Right. You know, um, at at where we are, it's it's essentially a point of I can have lots of creativity and skews, but there are going to be pretty limited because if you come to a distributor with a portfolio of 25 spirits, they're going to look at you and go, what am I supposed to sell here? Who are you? What do you, you know, what do you have? What yeah. do you, What is the thing that I can walk away with? And so you have to have appropriately planned the way that things are going to be, right? Yeah. So you have to have, you have to decide if I'm going to be creative about something, How how is that going to move? How am I going to sell it and market it? And will it be in the tasting room only? Will it be something that I use for arrow picks for, you know, clubs or whatever, but there's a limited amount that you can actually kind of bring out. Right. And depending, so, so that really is the scale, right? If you're selling everything out your front door, you can do a little bit more loosey goosey mm-hmm. because everything's going out your front door, but that does limit you to a certain extent too, especially because of the ridiculous structure of, you know, prohibition influence alcohol laws in this country, mm-hmm. you know, wineries can sell their stuff they can have clubs they can ship it across the country 47 states right yeah liquor way different wait well you you may mention that my wife and i were here uh, a little while ago for just a tasting and i didn't realize the law of because i what is it it virginia doesn't recognize actual bars that it's just all everyone's a restaurant and you (laughs) You have to be a restaurant 51 percent of your revenue has to come from food and and you obviously don't sell food here, but you serve. You can only serve up to what two ounces. That's total? because we're we are a dis, what is called the state of Virginia calls us a distillery store. So what we are is actually an ABC store that we are given a contract to operate on behalf of the state. 
That's frustrating. So when product comes up here, it moves up here and it's now state-owned product. Uh -huh. And all the, the money that comes from what we sell here goes directly to the state at the end of it each month, the full retail price. Then the state pays us our share with a commission plus net 30. Interesting. Yeah. So we have to follow the rules of the state in the way that we operate. Now, there are some places in Virginia where you can go to distilleries where they will have set themselves up as a bar and restaurant. Then they can pour full cocktails. But then they also have to have food minimums just like the other bars and restaurants or you know, bars by bars, it's bars have food. That's what they do. Right. It, whether it's a, a part of their service or whether they have a business that operates right next to them that does the food half of it. Interesting. So you'll see like some of this, the bars, um, they're like the speakeasy kind of bar place. It yeah. usually has like a bagel shop or a fish and chips attached to it so that they can move that the food that they need to, to keep their license. That's, I guess, I mean, I guess it forces you to be creative on how you sell, but that's one, and you, you talked about a little bit, and I, I'm always curious about the, you know, all these craft distilleries that have popped up out of nowhere, which you're right, it has made my choices as a whiskey lover far more accessible. Mm -hmm. But how does one set themselves apart? And I think for me, what I've found in talking to a lot of people, it's the story and the people behind the craft. Sure. For, you know, Jim Beam and Jack Daniels, these massive corporate, whenever they have great product, they have a great legacy, great history, whatever, yeah. but there's not many, you know, Becky's behind who I can talk to and be personable with who actually right. has a cool story. Mm -hmm. Do you think that helps with the marketing of the, of the product nowadays? Do you think there's people out there who are maybe salivating more for a craft distillery versus another Jack Daniels release? Well, is... you know, they know what they're doing. Sure. They've, they're bringing people out, right? They're bringing people out. They're bringing people out to be the faces of what they do. I mean, honestly, you look at it, um, you know, Jimmy Russell's been the face of, you know, Jimmy Russell, Fred, no, they've all had those personalities and always had those personalities that they're bringing out, right? I think they're focused on it, that that is something. They're focusing on getting the more diversity in those people mm -hmm. so that it's not just, you know, older white guys. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it, that they're recognizing where, you know, where they need to stretch out a little bit more. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's ways that they engage with their their fans and bring those out. And they're all lovely people. I oh, mean, sure. even you go to MGP and they're just lovely people. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think they're paying attention to that. That's, you know, how it goes. They don't they're not going to miss a trick and be outflanked on that any more than anything else. Of course. Yeah. I think there might be a little bit of a perception when like, you come to the small little operation where there's a lot more hands on TLC. The owners are here with the distillers and doing yeah. the thing doing the work. Um, I don't know. I, I think something for me and, and, and it's both products are great, but for me going to someone who has a story and has a, is an, is an approachable person who I can send an email to and sit on a podcast yeah. with. <laughs> and, uh, don't have to go through the PR. Firm. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm a fan of your rye and that's, I think I want to talk about that too, is that your product is hundred percent rye. Right. Is that a unique thing in Virginia? I know you it's were actually historically it's, it's a throwback. So most of the ryes that you're going to taste in Virginia aren't 100% rye. Sure. But if you go back to the 1600s, 1700s, when when Virginia was making rye, it was that was the Virgi first Virginia whiskey was rye, and 
it's all tied to agriculture and history, right? The the English came here to, you know, make money, get rich, right? Take for, take from the indigenous folks. <laughs> and um, they basically found they wanted to grow tobacco. Tobacco was what they wanted, right? So tobacco, we were, Virginia, the, the area was full of tobacco. I mean, shoot, the whole South was full of tobacco, but Virginia and North Carolina were big tobacco centers massive crops of tobacco well tobacco strips the soil and so one of the things that they did was use rye as a cover crop that re replenishes the soil but waste not why not you take that rye and you turn it into whiskey and whiskey was currency it was a way of preserving your crops now what was interesting about that as well though is because tobacco is so labor intensive at the time of the 16 and 1700s, people making beer, wine, spirits were all women. Yeah. Their names aren't there because women didn't have names for the purposes of any government records at that time. Right. But right. the women were doing it because the men were handling the tobacco crop because that was job one. That was the most money. Right. The other was small. Um, I like to tell people that, you know, I told you there were 200 craft spirits produ producers distilleries period in the U.S. when we started in 2009. Now there are 2,700. For context, at the time of George Washington's distillery at Mount Vernon, yep. when that was producing and it was the largest distillery in the, the colonial United States, he um, there were 3,500 distilleries in Virginia alone. <laughs> there were 13,000 in the entire colonial in the United States good time <laughs> the average production was like 150 gallons they're all tiny yeah. everything was small everything was artisanal everything was tied to a sense of place things tasted different depending on who made it and where you were that was how they did it people didn't you know different mash bills some people made peach brandy some people made apple brandy depending on what they had right yeah, yeah. it was totally tied to rum was rum was being made up and down the east coast people drank like fishes the average consumption before prohibition per capita was a gallon a week now, when I say per capita, that means including men, women, and children. Well, you know that women and children were not drinking a gallon a week. So that meant that most of the men were drinking way too excess. And that was, of course, the roots of prohibition. Yeah. So I like to say that when you're going to the time of George Washington, when you look, if you ever visit Mount Vernon's distillery, and it's a fantastic place, love it. The people there are amazing. I've had the privilege of working there with them a number of times making whiskey. It's amazing, have last. Um, that, and they're making very good rye. And um, we've done peach brandy, we've done apple brandy, but aside from that, you look at that, and that was like the peak of technology in the 1700s, you know, right yeah. there. That was at the, that point. Well, within the next 30 to 40 years, industrialization came for whiskey. And for instance, in like, I'm like pulling some of these numbers are a little fuzzy because I don't have my notes with me. But like 19, in 1810 or so, in New York, there were like, how many? Oh, God, it was like there were like. 50 or six, uh, 350 distilleries, something really, a lot of 1200 distilleries. Now I'm, now I'm just pulling numbers. Now I don't even know, but <laughs> basically in a 30 year period, 
the number of distillers decreased by probably 80% because we had started moving at that point. The, the coffee still was invented. You started seeing mass production. I see. And all these little places got squeezed out. Yeah. So the number of distilleries yeah. crashed within like 30 years. All these farm-based distilleries went out of business. Mm-hmm. There was no longer a market for their stuff. And it became the big, big places started to go. So when people talk about Maryland whiskey and Pennsylvania whiskey, that was what came when all the Virginia places got put out of business too. Gotcha. Right? So now we're talking big industrial whiskey. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is so Virginia basically made 100% rye because they worked with what they had on the farm. It was always a cover crop. You use that. When you went, started going, and now you've got a product that folks are shipping, right? And at the Virginia's time, we didn't age anything. Everything was sold out right away. Right. That's that's something that was even told in George Washington's letters. You know, he would write letters and tell people, oh, you need to um, come because we've got rye now, but it'll probably be sold out, you know, within a week. Sure. And so it was all totally new made. But then when they started getting bigger, right, they started shipping. Because now we're finding that the the grain production has moved inland. It's moved in west of the Appalachians. And now it's expensive to make whiskey east of the Appalachians. Much cheaper in the west side. Yeah. So that was where whiskey production moved, with the exception of like Maryland. Right. Now you have places in Maryland making whiskey and shipping it up and down the eastern seaboard. And you have places in western Pennsylvania doing that same thing. And they're shipping it in barrels. And what the people found was that it took long enough transit that suddenly Pennsylvania, they're like, I like that Pennsylvania rye, you know, because it's got that sweet vanilla and it's, it's all aged. caramel. Like, yeah. yeah. And so then Maryland people said, well, we can do that too. And so that was when whiskey aging started. And it was strictly because of transportation. So when you think about those things and the way that it kind of ties in with the movement is whiskey as an industry in this country, it really is fascinating. And that was at that point, Virginia was done. We were out. Yeah, right. That was it. That's I, I had the uh, the pleasure to speak to Steve Bashore at the distillery. Yeah, he's and a good guy. He's a great guy and he's very knowledgeable. He's a historian. So smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, that's, that kind of plays into what I've been talking about is that that that, that was real TLC. You're, you're stoking the fire, literal fire underneath the copper uh, still. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, so is it was there was there a, a, a reason why you chose for a modern distillery to go with 100 percent rye mash bill? Was it just for that historical aspect, or did you try a corn ad- additive to just to, or was it just no rye? Hundred percent from... rye. We wanted to speak to that. That's we awesome. wanted to speak to that. We that's why we use we don't use the Kentucky style beer stills. Oh sure. We use these uh, modified um, pot stills. Yeah. It allows me the flexibility to create the product I want. One thing that's typical with rye, and if you've listened to, you know, Todd Leopold talk about his three-chamber still and what that does for rye, the three-chamber still is essentially a way of mass-producing rye and mimicking the effects of a pot still and make it getting those same kind of, um, pulling out those same kind of flavor oils that, that Todd pulls out in a three-chamber still. That's yeah. what I can do by manipulating the way my still runs. I don't just turn it on and let it go. We watch it. We change the cooling. We change the heating and balance it so that I know that 
you know, a Kentucky style beer still will run 300 gallons of, of my mash in three minutes. Takes me six hours to run 300 gallons. And what that does is it allows me to cook it, cook it. And then you're, cha- you're pulling, you're, you're basically pulling your ethanol off in a beer still kind of flash, right? It's three minutes. It's gone. You've moved on. Right. The in the in the pot still, I start out with a mash that's pretty high in alcohol and it's cooking that alcohol off. And so it's changing the extraction and what rides with the ethanol through the still because the flavor oils are what rides along with your ethanol steam. Right. And as your mash gets lower and lower in ABV toward the end, that's when you really start pulling off some creamy texture and good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these good flavor oils. And rye has a lot of that, but they don't come off in the same way when you're running it through a Kentucky style beer. So that's why, I mean, shoot, seven, eight years ago, Scott and I discussed, literally, should we, because we're chumps, we work way harder than we should, (laughs) and it costs us way more to make the whiskey that we make than we would if we got a column still and could run it through in the way that they do. Sure. But we'd made the decision that then what justifies in our own mind, what what justifies doing it? Why wouldn't we just go buy some some um, merchant bottle? Right. I mean, it's way more lucrative. Yeah, for sure. And it's scalable and, you know, yeah. shoot, if we'd have done that, you know, things would be, we wouldn't be... <laughs> the little scrappy upstarts that we are, but we wanted to do something different. So yeah. that's kind of where we are with it. That's awesome. We're comfortable with it. And I, I, I'm glad you kind of de- uh, delved into that because I had never even heard that that difference in time between mm-hmm. the beer still and... Right. What, yeah. We take six hours. That's... Well, I mean, added to the TLC. Yeah. You're, you're, right. You're hands on doing the thing. It's a different thing. thing. And then that's why when we... I mean, shoot, 20, 2010, when I bring around whiskey for the first few times at that time 2010 there was only mgp really was 95 percent of what people drank up as rye yeah you might have some kentucky rye whether it be overholt or um you know some of the others but most people had an image of what rye was that was based on the um the the largest sources of rye that are out there in the market and most people had never tasted a rye that was grain to glass. And so the thing I would hear all the time is that doesn't taste like rye. Well, it absolutely does. <laughs> yeah. It just lays into and what, you know, people talk about now is whether you call it terroir or provenance or whatever you want to call it, it ties to place, it ties to flavor and it ties to technique. And all of that stuff is what you find when you have people in different places making things. And I would tell people as a rye evangelist if you will when i go across the country and i go to rye to whiskey shows i'm trying the rise i want to know what's new and what yeah. and now i can taste rye made in california and it's so different and it's amazing and i love that it's different and sometimes it doesn't have a profile that's my favorite but that's okay yeah it shouldn't I, I don't expect every whiskey to appeal to everybody right but what's adventurous and cool about it now is that everything is changing because there is this sense of where does something come from, whether you want to call it terroir or any of the other things you could call. Sure, sure. When you guys first started, did you do any MGP sourcing or did you no, was it all no, your own product? we've always made our own stuff. And there's, I think there's no shame in MGP. No, absolutely but... not. I think the tr- that it's merchant bottling is an honorable profession. You yeah. just 
for a while, there were some people who were being a little less than forthright. Yeah, right. And I think on. now, <laughs> you know, now we tend to know who is, it's pretty clear who is, you know, yeah. who's, who's sourcing and, and blending. And, you know, I don't have any beef with that. Yeah. There's great, they, they, all those folks make great whiskey. Um, I just think that it's a little challenging from a business standpoint when you're sourcing grain and you're paying more and i don't pay commodity prices i pay local prices right right and everything i'm doing is scaled so much smaller because i'm making it grain to glass gotcha and so the economics of scale that the largest producers have are so much different than what the smallest producers have and so, you know, there's a, an expectation that everything costs the same amount to make and that, you know, small producers, you know, you know, oh, they're just doing this. And it's it, what I find a little interesting is that there's has been, I think, an artificial deflation in whiskey prices held by the largest producers just because they want to keep the small producers from being able to charge their maximum amount, if you will. Gotcha. I never because, that. Uh, well, I mean, why would the list price, if you can't get Buffalo Trace list price, <laughs> yeah. then why is the list price what it is? It's a good point. It's Why aren't they taking that money? Right. It's. I mean, it's going for 70 plus dollars in DC right now. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, and if you want it at list price, which you could get it at Virginia ABC, it's like you have to know what days they're going to get it and go line up and grab it, right? Yep. Because that's the only kind of place where you can find it for that. And then somebody sells it on the secondary. Yeah. <laughs> which is a whole nother mess. Right. But it is, I think there's, there's something to be said about, <clears throat> you know, then one of the things I used to hear all the time was, well, why... And you would hear it and you would see people talking about it in places and they would say that craft spirits are overpriced because you can buy Japuffalo Trace for $29.99, right? Right, right. And you hear that all the time. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. And I think that's part of the, 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 the perception of the market that craft is, you know, this special thing. Right. When it, it really is the same process. It's just... Yeah, it's just not subject to the same kind of economic right. um, economies of scale. Yeah. And, you know... So I find it interesting from an economic perspective. You know, I don't, I mean, the big, big, big producers are doing exactly what they are going to do because they have to run their businesses and grow their businesses. They're accountable to their shareholders. But I think that it's important for folks to have a clear vision of that, you know, that small producers are really in a position where they're, on a deeply unequal playing field. Sure. And that, you know, there that that kind of uh sometimes you hear a bit of and it's not, you know, for most people, but but there are people who are like, "Oh, they're just overpricing it and all this stuff because it's like I know a lot of craft spirits producers and none of them are driving, you know, the 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 uh, Porsches and Teslas. <laughs> <laughs> Most right. of us haven't. I drove a 93 Ford Ranger for a long time. 
Nah, but there's something to that though. I think I'd be I'd be kind of turned off at a small distillery who had, who was making money hand over fist with yeah, selling. Yeah, it's their... very difficult to do that. I mean, I yeah. think that's that's why you see a lot of small producers sourcing because there's a way to kind of get things going while you try to get your own. But it's really difficult. It is difficult to make that the economics work, especially oh. as you grow and then you're in that same kind of you're on the same shelf with the larger producers. Absolutely. And you know, most people don't know the difference between what's made by legacy producers versus what's made by small businesses. They yeah, don't know. It's not transparent. No, and it's it's a pretty, I mean, all that knowledge is pretty, like, much in the whiskey community. Like, yeah. You and I know this. Oh, absolutely. But, but, but most people are like, I mean, I've had people say to me, I, I love craft spirits. You know, I, I drink Bullet. Have you heard of it? Uh, and, and I said, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've heard of Bullet. That's small yeah, distillery. It's, it's not really a small distillery, but I appreciate that you're trying new things, you know. <laughs> but but that's what it is. People don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Dad, so have you always been, I know you're a, a, a rye evangelist. I love that term. Mm -hmm. uh, have you always been a rye whiskey or just a whiskey no. person? No. How did you? No, I didn't till I started doing this business. I didn't. Wow. Okay. We basically started and I um started and start just choosing um running the process by what taught tasted good to me um i didn't have a lot of a wide um i hadn't done a wide exploration of whiskey i just went by what tasted good um smells good mm -hmm. those things and it was just uh instinct since then i've you know developed more of a palate and experimenting and at least understanding why I don't like some things. I didn't like bourbon for a long time. Couldn't, oh, sure. Didn't find a bourbon I liked. It was too sweet, too corny, yep. or too hot. Um, I wasn't drinking expensive enough bourbon, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Price doesn't always yeah. matter. <laughs> As an old granddad fan, I... <laughs> uh, oh, see, old granddad is not my jam. No? Oh, no, man. No, I, I, I try it every so often because there are so many people who love it, and I'm just Oh, not. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good. But, I mean, if you don't like that sweetness and that corniness, you're not going to be a big bourbon person. Right. Exactly. So for me, it was I liked single malts. The closest thing I liked to whiskey was single malt when we started the business. Okay. So to me, actually, if you're thinking flavor wise, to me, rye is way more in the the single malt family yeah. of flavors to me than it is bourbon. Sure. Because the corn dominates conversation so much with bourbon. And I think that even in a high rye bourbon, there's still an awful lot of corn. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's a uh, and to me, that's where I think I feel like for me, it was really natural to kind of gravitate toward toward rye because the the, the flavors seem similar in, in some ways. One thing that it's, it's always been impressed me with Catoctin is that there's not a lot of people like have this perception like we talked about it earlier, but the perception of rye mm -hmm. that spiciness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you have a, a like a high proof or a cast strength whiskey mm -hmm. add in some rye spice yeah it tastes like it's 120 proof yeah because mm -hmm. your brain might not know that referential flavor profile mm -hmm. in a yeah. rye mm -hmm. to to me has always been really good at hiding that that over spice it's it's much more of a, of a flavorful complex rye i don't know if you've noticed that compared to other distilleries or other ryes you've tried i think what when i'm looking for cast proof barrels so um one of the things I do that's a little different is I don't blend to a standard. I pick barrels that will give folks an experience. So it's it's kind of, and, and when we talk 
through it as a group of tasters who are making these decisions. It's so our flagship, it's, it's a front porch sipper. It's easy drinking. It should have a nice spice, just nice light on the back, but but lots of fruit and easy. Just nobody's working real hard. It's hot. You just want to sit there and chill. Right. That's my 80 proof. 92 proof, it should have more complexity and more spice, but still really nicely balanced with plum and citrus on the mid palate and working really nicely in cocktails. You know, that kind of more classic, but there are some things that it never really gets too much of, like the, the white pepper and the dill and some of those things aren't really in our flavor palette. Right. Um, and then the cask proof for me, if I'm going to drink a cask proof whiskey, first of all, it's got to smell amazing. <laughs> like not, not even just like, okay, it's really got to smell good. Like we, I put them into drums that have removable tops and I'll pop that lid open and put my face there. And if it isn't just like, oh, yeah, then, then no, it's not right. Second thing then is that when you have an overproof whiskey and and like that, sometimes you get whiskeys that are like, they come at you with the intensity of the alcohol and you wait and wait for that flavor to kind of catch up. Uh, that's not fun for me. No. I don't like that. So for me, I have to have the intensity and the flavor at the same time. So they've got to both hit you. Has to have texture. It has to kind of coat your tongue. So it's got this creaminess and this nice gorgeous texture and it almost reads lower proof than the 92 because you're insulated by all those flavor oils that are just kind of like coating everything and just mellowing it a lot of times at whiskey tastings when i'm doing them i will get people who come and they're like my two favorites are the 80 and the cask and it's because they're the ones that have the least intensity of that ethanol kind of to it interesting it kind of pops a little bit more with that ethanol in the 92 proof. Right. And it doesn't show up like that in the cask because that cask is just coating everything. And that's the pot stills. Yeah. You know, that's that that long period of distillation where I'm not pulling off a lot of spirit. But what I'm pulling off at that time has a lot of those flavor oils in there. That's awesome. So it's a, a little different way of doing things. And yeah. that's kind of how we do it. So you have those, those three of your... I guess I wouldn't call three your flagship. Your flagship is the 80. Yeah, the 80s one was our first one. Um, it's our bestseller here in Virginia. Um, it it does really well with, um, I find that people who are perhaps Irish whiskey drinkers, bourbon drinkers, they're not real whiskey people, like people who are always out there exploring all these things. Like, you know, so many in the whiskey community were like, oh, I love that. It's high proof in this one. And yep. no, these are just people who are going to, um, I did a tasting at a Costco and at one of those in Texas. Yeah. And I was there tasting a whole bunch of people. And these people were coming in just for, most of them were not coming in for anything <clears throat> hot, top, top shelf. They were coming in to pick up their regular spirits for whatever. Not all of them was whiskey. And when I tasted those people through in that th in one three hour period, I sold almost all 80 proof because people tasted it and they were like, oh, this is so nice. And they taste the 92 and they were like, I really like the 80 better. And they liked it. Price point was right. The flavor was right. They had a good feeling about it. And that was the one they wanted. And so 
that's what's interesting to me about it is that there's our our highest rated one is you know the 92 um but i think that a lot of people who aren't really seriously into whiskey they just love the 80 because it's just easy right right and then so you have that the 92 and what is the cast strength 116 116 yeah and then any other special bottles? I know we have the heavy metal guar. Yeah, ones. that one was out. We're pretty much, we've only got a couple of them, I think, left in the distillery right now. We had a few more cases come back from one of the um, festivals that um, they they rained out. So they didn't sell all their, 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 so there's a few bottles still in the tasting room. And it is in some of the other states where we distribute. Um, that one was really fun this year. Um, because we tweaked it from previous years. I did a blend. I had this uh, barrel select. Uh, that's our private barrel pick program, right? And I had this um, really, um, it had been sitting around for a while, probably like three years. It, it had been finishing in a rum cask. And it, I'm pretty sure it was a Jamaican rum cask just because it smelled so typical. Yeah. It had this crazy gorgeous nose and nobody ever picked it. People always picked other things. And so I sent the band two blends, one that was the blend that we did in previous years, just kind of reproducing that. And then one of them, one of those barrels, I put in was that Jamaican rum barrel. Yeah. And they loved it. And it balanced really nicely with the the kind of the the uh, apple and the uh, cherry that we have sure. also in there. The maple and cherry, sorry, not apple and cherry. But those flavors kind of really meshed nicely with the rum. So they 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 chose that one. So that's this year is a little different than previous years. But it which was suitable because it was kind of the odorous edition for odorous arangas and very cool. And yeah. Those those bottles have been called what, right? Ragnarok? Yeah, Ragnarok Rye. Ragnarok yep. Rye. Mm -hmm. I love I, I love the story and I, lo I love the the little uh, the, the toppers. toppers. Yeah, they're so cool. They it's had a, to have toppers. It totally did. From the minute I knew we were going to do this, I'm like, we totally have to have toppers. Yes, it has to be the band's heads on toppers. It was yeah yep. non negotiable. <laughs> I have an uno I have an unopened bottle from this year at at home. I haven't. I'm going to share it with some friends down south, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to try it's it. It's a fun one. It was fun. We, um, I enjoyed kind of tweaking that and and putting something a little different on it, a little different spin. Is there? Do you feel, especially because you're you're you're, I mean, you're here. You own this place. You do this thing. You you distill. Do you feel more free reign to experiment and try something different? Because you have your stuff that you sell that you know what you're doing. But as once in a while, you squirrel away a barrel and say, you know what? We're going to let that age for another year. See what happens. Well, we do our, our rabble rouser that we've been doing um, for a long time. Up until last this last year was the last year that we aged our rabble rouser bottled in bond release in 30-gallon barrels. So if you're in a 30-gallon barrel, there's kind of an upper limit of really where you want to hang out that long. Just, right, right. I mean, loss is pretty... <laughs> ridiculous and at four years in a 30 gallon barrel i was losing a third Jeez. that's a, that's a lot yeah. it, it hurts <laughs> liquid gold <laughs> i mean people are like angels here i'm like that's lost <laughs> um so a while back i started moving those into 53s once i moved so for a long time we actually stored our barrels in an old horse barn out in the county because it was really cheap rent. We knew the people, they were like, yeah, you can put it in. And we said, so we did that. And so 
For a long time, I would transport my barrels. I would transport four 30-gallon barrels because most of my stuff is aged in 30-gallon barrels. Um, you can fit four 30-gallon barrels in the back of a 93 Ford Ranger, and you can take them to and roll them down an ATV ramp into the horse barn, <laughs> and you can flip them end over end and put them in there because you don't have any power equipment. It's dirt floors. It's like basic. We just put pallets on the floor and put those barrels on top and they'd stay there. So that limited me to how big my barrels could be because I can't move a 53 gallon barrels in the back of the 93 Ford Ranger. Right. And I can't roll them down and flip them end over end. Now there are people in Kentucky that can do that. <laughs> I am not one of them. I am a middle-aged woman and I have value my back. <laughs> The, um, so we did not put anything into 53s until it was probably 2018. Okay. 2018, 2017. We had gotten, we had purchased a building that had cement floors so I could have a forklift. Mm. And then we bought a box truck so I can put 53s on the box truck, transport it safely and move them, you know, without hurting anybody because safety's first. Yeah. Every time. And so now I have 53. So next year, and I have to get on this. This is on my to-do list, is get together. We'll probably do, um, a, It's. I think it's going to be six to seven years old. I haven't decided 100% yet, but we're going to have a six-year-old Rabble Rouser bottled and bond next year because I have 53s I'm pulling from now. Very cool. Yeah, so that's the new thing. That's going to be new. Um, I haven't done a ton of blending, so that's fun to kind of stretch that because most of what we do is single barrel. Yep. Um, and so that's that's a cool new thing that we're doing. Um, we also came up with our first new skew in a long time with the uh, hot honey ride that we're doing. Phenomenal. Thank you. Thank Very you. Good. You know, it was it was funny because we had done it. We had piloted it. With, as a collaboration with a hot honey producer, they aged their honey in our barrels. We put whiskey in it and people went crazy when I did it as a couple of barrel selects. I think there was a, a club uh, out in Kansas. Somebody had picked one up. There was a couple other clubs that grabbed them. People loved it. They loved it. And we kept getting people asking for it. Sure. And I was like, it doesn't make you know, it's I have a few barrels for future for picks and stuff for that that are getting ready to be available. But at the same time, I'm like, we kept getting people who wanted it like at, as a regular offering. And so I was like, it doesn't make sense to do it as a barrel barreling step because that just doesn't make sense from a cost perspective and pricing. I right. can't price it appropriately with that right. and accessibly. So what we did was I had to kind of figure out, okay, how can I create something from whole cloth that's going to give people this experience? So we had to kind of experiment with, okay, we're going to get honey. We're going to get chilies. We're going to infuse these things. We're going to figure out how to do it. I made a lot of undrinkable whiskey getting to that point, but I wanted it to be first you get the whiskey. It tastes like whiskey. It has the proof of whiskey. It's 80 proof. It's whiskey. Then it has that honey and I have to be able to smell the honey and I have to be able to get that honey distinctly. And then the chilies kind of as this nice, warm, all three of them being in balance felt super important to me. Sure. So it took quite a while to get 
right to where it was. Yeah, right. You don't want that spice to just punch in the mouth. You I want to have that it's flavor. It's not like a, I would, I dare you to eat that wing or that chip, right? <laughs> right I mean, right. we've all seen that. No, yeah. I, I don't feel like that's the kind of thing that people are going to come back to over and over again. I want sure. this to be something that people are like, oh, this is really good. I want to buy it. I want to drink it. I want to share it with friends. Yeah. No, I, and I, you've done a good job. It's a, it's a, it's a great release. It's a fun addition to the line. Yeah. Thank you. It was kind of, I was kind of nervous about it because I tasted all my people here on it and everybody's like, oh, it's really good. I love it. It's great. It's delicious, you know, but till you get it out and uh, a few people that I knew, know that I really respect their opinions, actually, you know, uh, one of my good friends, she, uh, she was out there. She said, I tasted your hot honey rye. And, and I said, oh, did you? And she said, yeah, I wasn't. She's like, I didn't think I was going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and she said, but I did. It's really good. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty credible answer. <laughs> I know. Because she was just like, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think I was going to like it. And yeah. So I was like, she's like, you, you got what you were aiming for. So good. that's good. So we're hoping that's a, a good fun product that you know brings maybe some other people into rye that haven't been here before yeah no that's that's awesome it's uh, you know there's a lot that the market doesn't know until you know until you see what they want yeah and like that and, that's a great story and, and also you know there are so many flavored whiskeys out there that aren't they don't really have like natural ingredients right and for me it was really important to use natural honey yep you know um it took me a while to come up with a blend of honey that really fit with the rye and the chilies in the right way because it like if you just use one kind of honey you didn't get the dimension it didn't have the texture and the depth and so for me it was it ended up using i used three different honeys um uh, a wildflower a clover and a buckwheat honey to oh. get the texture and the flavor right with the chilies so that it kind of does exactly what i was hoping it would do interesting well that's awesome so, yeah it's fun we'll see i was gonna say it's a that's a pretty terrible job you have <laughs> <laughs> well i did make some whiskey that it was like you <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> it tasted it would just be like help <laughs> so we definitely figured out what not to do too right right well very cool is there anything else exciting coming from the distillery we could talk about or uh um pretty much that's that's the the latest and greatest um you know we do special releases here in the distillery all the time of course um you know we've got like right soon coming out i think in the next couple of weeks is our maple cask um, age whiskey, which is always, it sells out super fast. Yeah. So I made, uh, I made a, a couple barrels this year so that we wouldn't run out quite so fast. Right. Um, that's always a real popular one for the holidays. Scott likes to say it's also a little dangerous cause it's just so, it, it's so like you drinkable. think our regular cask is easy drinking. <laughs> the maple cask proof is even more easy drinking at 116. So but that's coming out, um, you know, we're just kind of keep going and, uh, you know, building our business one barrel at a time. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I'm a sucker for maple, so I'll be back for that. Awesome. But it, I, it's been great to be here. I, I love coming here. My wife and I have been here a couple of times and uh, you make a great product. Thank so you. you. You're doing a great job, Becky. I appreciate have, have you having me here in the distillery. That's part of the, the fun, too. The <laughs> you distillery. can hear the forklifts now. I was going to say, it's an active <laughs> and distillery. And the pallet jacks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I appreciate this. Yes. Thank you so much. Of course. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The more reviews, the easier we are to find. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow us on social media so you never miss any of our updates. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and always be sure to drink responsibly. There are quite literally thousands of distilleries, so we're just getting started. Stay tuned for more conversations with master distillers, distillery owners, mixologists, and even bar owners, and more. Cheers. Cheers.